Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online globally, WPVMFM.org. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks. If you're interested in more of Walter's music, WalterParks.com is a good place to start. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com, that's a good place to start as well. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, Nave at jamesnave.com. And if you'd like to know more about where the name Twice Five Miles comes from, twicefivemiles.com. If you've been listening to this show, you know that I have had many, many guests on, and sometimes I'll have a guest on I've never met before, a stranger. Somebody says, why don't you interview so-and-so? And I go, why not? Sounds like an interesting subject. So that's what I do. And you also know, if you've been listening to this show, that I have people on the show I've known for many years, people I consider dear friends, people I've been close to, people I've learned from, shared with, explored with, been changed because of. And today I have just such a person to be with us for the next hour. His name is Mark Smith. He spells his first name M-A-R-C, no K, a C, Mark Smith. And I met Mark many years ago when I first became involved in the Poetry Slam. And if you have been listening to this show over the last few years, you know that I will often refer to the Poetry Slam. And I've had many guests on the show who know a whole lot about the Poetry Slam. Mark Smith's an unusual guest. He knows a lot about the Poetry Slam, knows a lot about poetry. He also knows a lot about construction and conversation and people and culture. But most especially, he knows about the Poetry Slam because he invented it. He was the originator of the Poetry Slam. And when I first met Mark, he was quite involved in it early days, long before I became involved. Then I became involved in it. It became a movement. And to this day, it's had a dramatic impact and influence all over the world. So, Mark Kelly Smith, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm fine. And people who call me Jim have known me a long time. And I can always <laughs> tell when somebody calls me Jim, I say, oh, that's somebody from way back when we first were first were engaged and young. So, Mark, I am glad to have you on the show. And I love to engage in these long conversations about the creative process and poetry and, and why we do what we do. And as you well know, we started all this poetry, spoken words, slam business years ago. And, and for a little bit of time, Asheville was one of the centers for the poetry slam movement. And often in this show, I've referenced the Green Door and I've referenced Ginger West and Lee Lancaster and Alan, Alan Wolf, the, the great Alan Wolf, and, and some of the others, Danny Solis, Pat Storm, and a lot of the other people who were involved in the Asheville scene back in the early 90s. And I know that you were deeply involved with it as well, even though you come from Chicago. So what I would like to do is to ask you to open up with some reflections on your experiences with Asheville as a human being, as a, as a creator, as the inventor of the slam and other things. And then we'll go from there and, and maybe give the listeners some information about how you started a slam and, and what's it, what it's all about, that insider stuff that is there, but few have access to. So Asheville, what does it mean to you, Mark Smith? 
meeting Ginger and Alan all started in South Bend, Indiana. Alan and Ginger got somehow got word that we're going to have a Midwestern regional poetry slam. It was hosted by a guy named Casey Potius in South Bend. And it was the first time he'd ever done anything there. It wasn't even a festival. It was a couple day event. Alan and Ginger came up to represent Asheville at it and take a look at what was going on. I don't know if you were. I was indeed with okay. that crew at the time. And honestly, I have not thought of that in years. And I had forgotten that that's where we met. And I remember that Alan was so excited about it. And, and we were so intent on coming and we wanted to participate nationally. And we rented a van. And I think Ted Pope might have been with us, a couple of other people. And we drove up in the van, all very excited. And we got there and it was at some union hall or someplace what was really amounted to the middle of nowhere. I can't even remember where, where it was at. It was, uh, it was a shoestring operation, and Casey was, you know, he was a good guy. He had been coming to the show in Chicago for quite a few times, and uh, he took on the responsibility to put this Midwestern regional slam together. I remember you guys came up, but it was more like a scouting, what the hell is this slam thing? And when you guys left, okay, we're going to do this same kind of thing. And you went back home and as was with the, how the early years of the slam happened, people would experience it somewhere and they'd go back home and I can do this. And that was what, what it was all about. And the green door, is it? That's right. The green door in Asheville. Green door. What a wonderful manifestation of the slam idea. I remember one of the things that was, For the competition part of it, you didn't have just one judge. I think you had like 15 different people were judges, and which was the effort to include everybody. The whole thing was just a design to get people involved. And the one way to get an audience involved with what's on stage is to make a little drama of a competition out of it. And also, you guys down there... The atmosphere was very crowd-inclusive, which was really wonderful for me to see. Before we go too much further down the line, just in case those of you out there listening have no idea what a poetry slam is, I'll define it, and then I'll let you also add to that, Mark. But the way I understand it, it's competitive poetry, judged like a diving match. Five judges are chosen from the audience. Ideally, they don't know much about poetry, and yet they're there, and the requirement is to stay until the end of the show. The judges judge the poem that the poet performs, and the poem can be performed memorized, or it can be performed read, or or the poet could stand on stage and be silent for three minutes, and that would be the piece of work that was done. And the idea behind it, as you said, Mark, is to get people to engage in the process to bring the audience in a sense on stage to make the whole arena the stage and when we were doing it at the green door led by alan wolf and when we drove up to see you folks up in south bend indiana we had done a few slams and we had no idea how to do it other than how we did it 
And Alan and all of us were also involved in the project Poetry Alive, which was based out of Asheville. And many of us had memorized poems from the school textbook and were performing them as theater, but none of us had ever written anything particularly for ourselves to perform. So it was a brand new thing, even though many of us had some performance chops. And with those performance chops, we learned and invented as we went along. So Mark, what about you? What's your take on all this? The real root of what I did was not competition. It started with performance. For a poet to perform was, oh my goodness. You guys down there, because of Poetry Alive, were very different. You'd already discovered that that's how to make people interested in poetry is to perform it. And that's where the roots were way back with the Greeks from it. My root definition of slam is remarriage of performance with the writing of poetry, putting them together. The competition aspect came a couple of years after I'd started first show at the Get Me High Jazz Club, which was with the Chicago Poetry Ensemble. Fortunately, at the beginning, the competition became a very interesting because it was an easy way to translate what was going on from city to city an easy format to follow. Unfortunately, as the years went on, it became so focused on the competition. Fortunately, the performance chops grew along with that focus on the competition. But after a while, the creativity that was there in the early years of trying many different things with poetry declined into the three minute poem on the stage and became, in my point of view, too egotistical. It lost the idea that we were doing this for our community audience, not just to glorify ourselves on the stage. Asheville, Alan and you and Ginger and you and everyone else involved, you guys were just the, the great example of that community aspect. I remember when I came down there with the Pong unit, that was one of the bands that I worked with and did a show. At the end of the show, because you had set it all up special for us, at the end of the show, like 25 different people from the audience and, and some of the Asheville poets themselves were all there, the army of workers breaking the chairs down and everything. It was just such a tribute to the really strong community that was built up by you guys in Asheville. I'll never forget that. So to sum it up, yeah, it's a competition, but the more important aspect of it is the ability to create a community around this art form of performance poetry, which is taken for granted now. Back when we started, only a few people like Poetry Alive and a few others were daring to perform. It was almost a taboo to even emote a little bit of emotion with your stuff. So. Well, you know, Poetry Alive rose out of a few trips Bob Falls and I took to the Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. So we were inspired by the storytellers. At the National Storytelling Festival, I went to the ninth one in 1981. So that means the storytellers were busy in the early 70s with that festival, which now to this day still 
holds forth in Jonesboro, Tennessee every October. Hopefully this October it will come back live and in person. So when I first went to the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro in 1981, I heard some of the storytellers reciting poetry on the stage, like the classic Cremation of Sam McGee, for instance, was one that I heard early on at the Storytelling Festival. And when Bob Falls and I started to talk about how you could deliver poetry in a way that would be meaningful for the audience, we said, well, why couldn't you just tell poems like the storytellers tell stories? So when we arrived at the Slam, which was in 1991, when Alan and I were in Natick, Massachusetts, and a woman named Suzanne told us that if we really wanted to see some performance poets, we should go down to TT and the Bears and watch Ray McNeese and Patricia Smith perform. And the next night, Alan and I went down there and we thought we were the greatest performance poets on earth. And there was a fellow on the stage. He was a professor from one of the bigger colleges and he had long wavy hair and he's a very tall guy and you couldn't hear a word he said. And so somebody in the audience says, we can't hear what you say. We can't hear you. And he said, that's your problem. And I was like, you got to be kidding. And he was awful. And then Ray came out, Ray McNeese, and he was just brilliant. And then Patricia Smith emerged and she was even more brilliant in some ways than Ray. And they were both top level. And then afterwards we had some coffee with him, went out for a drink or whatever and sat and talked. And Ray did come to work for Poetry Alive and Patricia wanted to, she was working for the Boston Globe at the time. And Ray said, well, why don't you start a slam in Asheville? And so we did. Alan was the leader. He said, yes, we will do that. And he came back to Asheville and started a slam. And that was in, in 1991. So I think probably the first slam we had in Asheville was some, sometime in the fall of 1991. And that's when we started experimenting with it. And nobody knew really what it was, but we did it anyway. And that's, that's where it started. And that may be why we were never as poetically confined from a performance point of view because we didn't know any better. Your example of the professor up there saying, that's your problem, was exactly what I reacted to. You'd go to poetry readings. There were open mic poetry readings with a special guest. And it was always like the audience is supposed to come up to speed with the guy on the stage. And half the time their, their writing was so obscure, you'd need to have a pile of reference books. They weren't communicating. If you're going to be on the stage, it's your obligation to communicate to the audience. It's not the audience's obligation to try to figure out what you're doing. So your example is, is really great. And that's what I reacted to when we started in Chicago, because believe me, there was nobody in this city. I made a trip to New York to check out what was going on in New York. Other than the ABC Del Rio, I think the name of the club was, that was the only place that I found anybody that was remotely close to what we were doing in Chicago. Everybody was very proper and you have to figure out what I'm doing rather than trying to communicate like a singer does or a comedian or a, even a preacher. They know the art they're trying to get through. And that's what we started doing in Chicago. That's what it takes. Somebody like you and the people in Chicago to start something and create something that's fairly easy to copy. Slam was very easy to copy. Open up the venue, ask people to sign up, get some judges from the audience, present the poets on the stage. Judges judge the poets. Somebody gets a score. Somebody goes home a winner. 
$10 in their pocket. So it was easy to do, easy to copy, and it was very democratic. All you have to do is show up and get your name on the list. And once the list is full, you have to come back next week and try again. And if you come back three times in a row, you're likely to get on the list. And there you are, you're up on the stage. So it was a domain changer because it required nothing of the person signing except the desire to say something. And that shook a lot of people up. Now, after 30 years or so of this idea being integrated into the culture, I'm thinking now that we have arrived at the time when the competition has ceased to be that important. It's taken 30 years for it to cycle through. And I think the reason why it's cycled through like that is because the value and the benefits from the original idea of engaging the audience and pulling them in and making them part of the community of the evening or forever, maybe, people have realized, well, that's not about competition. And in some ways, the younger people today are maybe less inclined to communicate in competitive ways, like the people that we knew way back when, because we were coming 30 years ago out of a very competitive environment. Not to say that this environment's not competitive now, it maybe has changed. And a lot of the slam poets have gone on to get other degrees and they've made all kinds of flashes that have nothing to do with the competition. It is truly the age old cycle of here's all these outsiders. We don't want nothing to do with them. The, the criticism that we went through in Chicago for what we were doing was just unbelievable. I didn't care because our audiences were growing and growing and and the institutional academic world side of it was still stagnant. But boy, did they criticize us. And now teach it in university. It's that classic, you're the outsider, and now it's on the inside. For me personally, I like still being on the outside. I don't like being on the inside of it because it becomes a convention and it gets safer than it should be. We pushed all the boundaries. But isn't that the nature of art? As people who create art, we make an idea, we engage in it, we explore it, we disrupt the status quo, if you will, we change the domain. And when I say we, I mean the slam was a collective effort on many, many, many uh, contributors' parts. And then the domain changes and it adjusts and it does become more, if you will, mainstream. For example, Amanda Gorman on stage at Joe Biden's inauguration. What what more can you say? She she knocked it out of the park and it was exactly what needed to be done. And as I watched her, I thought she's following in the footsteps of all those who came before her. And so the young people pick it up at the same point. You and I arrive at a time in our lives when we leave things behind. We now can go on and do other things. You and I are in our 70s, you and I are the same age now. So we have arrived at a time when we have opportunities to, to be change agents, even still in different kinds of ways. I would like for you to shift just slightly. And if you could tell us the story of the first slam you hosted, I, I would love to hear that story. When do you remember well, the you first know, one? It, it's it's funny, the Chicago Poetry Ensemble is going to go online in, in a few days celebrating one of the members, Anna Brown's book that she's come out with. 
and it'll be the first time that we'll all be together. Uh, the Chicago Poetry Ensemble is the first ensemble that I ever put together. And I put together an ensemble because I realized that most of the poetry world was always the one poet on the stage. And it's like, well, why does that have to be? You know, why can't it be like theater? Why can't it be interaction and get off this kind of one poet on stage doing stuff? I started that ensemble while I had the poetry reading at the Get Me High Jazz Club. It was a Monday night poetry reading, and that's where we got all our performance chops. There was no competition there. It was just about Chicago Poetry Ensemble performance. And we were doing shows around Chicago at one night stands at all these different clubs and back rooms of clubs and everything. And we were looking for a place to settle in at. The Get Me High Jazz Club was too small, didn't have a good stage, didn't have lighting or anything. I heard that Dave Gemmelow was going by the Green Mill Jazz Club, and I had done some shows with the ensemble at another club of his, the Deja Vu. When he opened the Green Mill in July 1986, I had gone to him before his opening. I asked him for Sunday nights. He wasn't going to do jazz on Sunday night. He gave me Sunday night, and it was originally to accommodate the Chicago Poetry Ensemble, the work that we were doing. There was about seven of us, Dave Cooper, Rob Van Tile, Anna Brown, Gene Howard, Mike Barrett, Karen Nystrom, John Sheehan. These were all people that I had discovered in Chicago who had a flair for performance. And I put them all together into a group. So the first night, there was no competition. It was just to accommodate the poetry ensemble. And the night went like this. The night started out with an open mic. It had a little music in it. And then the middle set was a poetry skit that involved the ensemble. And we got done with the the show, which was supposed to be three hours, and we didn't have enough material left for the last set. And so it was an impromptu, okay, we're going to have a King of the Hill slam. There was no rules or anything. It was just, okay, audience by audience applause. It was madness. That was how the first shows went. The ensemble, man, the work they did. For the first six months, we were writing a script rehearsing a script and putting a script up every week. The ensemble, these people were the most courageous of them all because nobody wanted to see performance poetry. We would do the gorilla thing where we just go into a club and just do stuff. Nobody knew we were coming, here we go. Very courageous stuff, figuring out what what it was to do, because nobody really had a background, a theater background, and we were all just writers. That's how the first ones went. They're pretty raw. I had guest poets, too, in the evening, like Bob Rudnick, an old White Panther guy, was one of them, Mary Jo Marchnight, who was from the performance art world. Performance art world was big at that time. It was raw and wonderful, just raw and totally wonderful and gutsy. Well, Mark, I can't say that what Bob Falls and I experimented with in 1984, Poetry Alive, was necessarily gutsy, although it did take a 
bit of effort to stand on the stage and perform poetry having never done it before. I'll, I'll say that much for it. So there you were up in Chicago doing some gutsy stuff, and, and we were in Asheville doing some maybe a little less gutsy experimental stuff, also in the same time frame, 1984. So I suppose it would be fair to say that we were all gutsy in our own way, no matter how we went about it. So for those of you who may not be familiar with Poetry Alive, the idea was fairly simple. My business partner, Bob Falls, and I decided to memorize poems from the school textbooks and perform them as theater for anybody who would listen, most especially students. It worked very well because the teachers liked the idea. The poems were coming from the material they were teaching, and then what we would do after we performed the poems, we would go into the classrooms and teach the students how to perform poetry as a fun way of studying it. Turns out, if you memorize a poem and perform it, you'll have a much better understanding of its meaning, its rhythm, everything about it. So in August of 1984, Bob Falls and I performed our first Poetry Alive show on stage at the famous listening room everybody knew as McDibbs in Black Mountain, North Carolina. It's no longer around, and yet its legacy continues. So Mark, funny enough, we were performing our first two-hour live show at McDibbs in Black Mountain in the summer of 1984. And there you were in Chicago, experimenting with a style of performance poetry that had never been done before publicly. And we were down in Asheville doing something a little different because we were using written material from, from other people. We weren't doing, doing our own work. I often tell people, and I'd love to get you to clarify this to see if it's true. People ask me where the name Slam comes from, and, and I'm not sure where it comes from, but here's what I tell them. I'll say that, well, you know, my good friend Mark Smith started the slam in Chicago. And, and, and if you, it's the slam is not about throwing your opponent on the stage and jumping up and down on the poet. The slam, it comes from, from baseball, the grand slam in baseball. Can you connect so well emotionally with your poem that the audience will respond the same way that the Chicago Cubs stadium would respond at the end of the game, one pitch left, the bases are loaded and Lo and behold, the batter knocks it out of the park and Chicago wins the series. Can you do that with your poem? And people go like, I don't know. And I'll say, most of the time you can't. But if you ever do, that's what a 10 is. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I made that up. Well, you made it up, but you're very close to the truth. As I said, uh, we had already been at the Get Me High Jazz Club with the Monday Night Poetry Reading, which became fabulously popular. A very small place, but it's it's unbelievable. We got 80 people in there, and it was like putting 80 people in your closet that small. It became very popular. I was working with the Chicago Poetry Ensemble, and when I got Dave to say yes to Sunday nights at the Green Mill, Lynn Vodish from the Sun-Times had already done a couple articles on the Get Me High Club. She wanted to do a preview article for me. The press in Chicago when I started out was just just fabulous to us. They covered the shows so well and they just were really behind us. And Lynn Bodish was one of the early ones that did that. 
So she called me up on the phone and said, well, what are you calling this show? I hadn't even thought about what am I calling this show? And so slam dancing was around at the time. And as you said, I was also thinking about Grand Slam and Bridge. And I was thinking about the Chicago Cubs once when I was a little kid, I'm sitting watching a game and I'm wishing for Ernie Banks bases loaded, they hit a grand slam home run, and it happened. And I thought, that's what's happening at the Get Me High show, because we, and they don't do this in the slam world today, at least in America, at the Get Me High show, you were allowed to talk back to the poets. You were allowed to heckle. The rule at the Get Me Why was, if your heckle isn't more intelligent than the poem on the stage, you got to shut your mouth up. It was not mean most of the time. Sometimes it got mean, but it was in great fun. And it was permission for the audience to respond because a lot of the, the traditional poetry readings were you had to be very quiet and applaud everything you heard. At the Get Me High, the audience could talk back. A poet could get slammed down, but they could also, like you said, hit the home run. And so the combination of those two ideas fit perfectly. And I didn't want to just say poetry reading because nobody would come. So the name was Uptown Poetry Slam. I wanted to get the neighborhood of the new club in there and it caught. So Mark, if you don't mind, I'd like to pause for just a minute and do a station identification. Folks, you are listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, Fertile Ground, for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world, plus on other community radio stations throughout the country. For example, out in Taos, you can hear this show on KCEI 90.1 Cultural Energy Radio. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to hear more of Walter's music. You can always connect with me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, Nave at JamesNave.com. Love to hear what you have to say. What's up in your neck of the woods, your field? What's your story? Nave at jamesnave.com. Also, you can learn more about Twice Five Miles at twice5miles.com. Little bits of information there that'll help you get your work over the finish line in case you're running that race. And so, Mark Smith, we know the race you've been running for a while has been centered around poetry and poetry slams. And I'm really glad that you've clarified how the name Poetry Slam came to be. I, I really do appreciate that. I've always loved the idea of telling people about how that name came to be. And I have loved the idea of the Grand Slam in baseball and the emotional tone that hits everybody when somebody actually achieves that. And I've seen it done as you have. I've seen it done more than once. Now, you don't really see it all that often. And uh, beyond the Poetry Slam or the Poetry Performance World, you, you seldom see it anywhere. Occasionally, it happens. Maybe somebody at a corner store tells you a story about something that happened to them yesterday, and you have exactly the same response. It's not limited to some formal presentation on stage. It can be how we connect emotionally all the time with each other. 
Yeah, we used to call it rock the house at the Green Mill. Everybody in the early years would come and you wanted to rock the house. And it was just that thing. It was like a spontaneous, wow, what, what just happened? You know, holy Moses. And, and everybody would come to rock the house. And it's funny, those first few years, nobody would read the, the same poem they had read before. And it was always new stuff every week. Anybody who's an artist, we know that's taking a big risk when you start something fresh. You don't know how, how it's going to get responded to. You could fall flat on your face. So, you know, every Sunday night, it's all of us. We'd either go down the tubes or we would rock the house. I don't know if you remember this, but in 1996, I showed up at the Green Mill. I've been there many times to watch your show and have participated in that show on occasion. And that night I did join the slam and I won with an improvisational piece. You may not remember it, but I won with a 30. I got a 30 and the other guy was a local guy and he thought he was going to win. But what I had done was I had jotted down all the words of all the slammers who came before me. So when I stood up, I held the paper with the words and I improv from the paper using all those words and it really worked. So I have the the distinction of having gotten a 30 and won one slam at the Green Mill, your local venue. So I've always enjoyed that memory a whole lot. On that note, maybe it would be nice right now, it would be for me to offer you the opportunity to present a piece of work that you've been working on or a poem that you might have that you could offer us. Well, you know, the, the project that I'm involved in now is the last word quintet some jazz guys, a singer, Al Day, Brian Geppert on sax, Bob Long on piano, to Doug Lofstrom on bass. These are guys that have been around and they're just so wonderful. It's a great collaboration because everybody brings new ideas to the mix. It started with Al, old folky, and he has these great, great songs. And I hear the songs and I, I intermix the poem in it. I'm another player in the band. I'm another instrument in the band. Because Al is usually the lead with it. So this goes to Al's tune. Uh, I'll just read one of his verses. I'll try to sing it like him. He's got a Tom Waits. Search your mind, search your soul. Look behind you. Thoughts that follow each place you run to in the flame that they draw you right into, still in silence wraps around us there again. That's the flavor of his thing. His ideas are a little more abstract about the searching that you go through in your life. And then I just uh, put to it, and it's kind of a nice moving rhythm to it. I put this poem to it. Bald man about to blow a stop sign, breaks hard, scrunches, puts his hand up, so sorry, to a sleepy-eyed woman, tugging at her dog's leash, smiling back, it's okay, been there. Hey, what's the rush, muses the tuck pointer, taking his time to climb the scaffold, eye drinking the garden path below, a lot of work went into making that patch of gravel look so pretty. Huh? says the carpenter down the block cutting planks to fill in the porch steps at the corner where two cops parked illegally balance a box of Dunkin' Donuts on their knees as a bus squeals to a stop 
to let down the mechanical platform for a grandma burdened with a shopping cart. Thank you, thank you, sir, thank you. Bicycles fly by. Troops of young workers file toward the train station, cell phones in their faces, clutching lattes from the perfect cup, where Hugh, the filmmaker, plots his next script, and Janice, the real estate agent, barks too loud, and Barney, the retired accountant, perches on the outside edge of the storefront bench under the cigar-dangling catalpa tree. Morning in this world. Every day the same, every day different. If you slow down and look close, maybe you'll see yourself with no tweets to disturb the peace. And there you go, Mark. No tweets to disturb the peace. I like it. You got another poem for us? I'll read this one. It's called Small Boy. This was the rain. This was the thunder. This was the electrostatic stitches knit now and again in the gray growing darkness gripping the sky. This was the bright blue, the sun, steps of a spider, light on the downspout, beads on the paint flakes peeling off tin. This was the moon dissolving in a window, wrapping a shade of passage of air. It moved the curtains, sheer white from the wood sill, wet to the alley, caught in the spin. This was the cry calling at midnight, voiceless a cry calling within. These were the footsteps. Someone was coming, no one to listen, no one to care. He was a small boy running from father. He was a father running to son. They were a moment caught in a photo, caught in the sunlight, caught in the spin. Here is the green lawn under the sunlight. Green is the empire bounded by walks. Here he is running fast through the red leaves, falling in autumn into a pile. Face of all sunlight, passage through gangways, taken at emergence, emergence to light. This is the bright face, face of October, racing the summer, Indian ghost. These are the brushed leaves, frosted in morning, curling at sunset, curling in smoke. This is the lace gown, garment of snowfall, flaking upon him, falling within. He was a small boy running from father. He was a father running to son. They were a moment caught in a photo, caught in the sunlight, caught in the spin. This was the rain. This was the thunder. This was the lightning stitching the sky. Here comes the dark blue coated with moonlight. These are the stars spinning on high. These are the stars spinning on high. Hey, man, that was good. Here comes the dark blue coated with moonlight. You know, some people have said you are the modern-day Carl Sandburg of Chicago. Do you think that's possibly true? Well, you know, it's, you know, Carl Sandburg was just a brilliant, brilliant guy. I never thought of myself as the great poet. My whole philosophy is an audience on a stage for one night, 100 people. I'm happy. All those years that I was writing poems and sending them off to little magazines and get all the rejection slips like all of us had. 
for me, let's throw the ego out the door. If you're an artist, you're a servant. You're a servant to your community. In that essence, I am a poet of the people. Sandberg was the same way. He was a performer. He had big audiences that he performed to. He was a socialist. I'm a socialist. And he was deep in the vernacular. And his subject matter was the people around him. In that essence, I'm like him. And I do have much of his repertoire in, in my repertoire. I think you put your finger on the pulse of it all. This isn't about being famous. It isn't about being a celebrity. It isn't about being chatted about in the um, in the conversations of, of the communities. It's It's more about the kind of gifts that you can give to someone as you make your art which I think is really, is really important. Do you by chance have a, a small bit of Sandberg you could offer us as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the fish crier. I am the fish crier on Maxwell Street with a voice like the north wind blowing through the corn stubble in January. I dangle herring in front of prospective customers Invincing a joy like that of Madonna dancing. My face is the face of a man terribly glad to be selling fish. Terribly glad God made fish. Terribly glad God made the customers to whom I can cry fish from a pushka. I've always loved the way you characterize the people in your poems so that they each have their own voice. Fish! It's just wonderful. The piece you just did, you clearly lived into it. You imagined into it. And you allowed it to imagine itself back through you, creating a character that wasn't Mark Smith. And often people who think of poetry, they, they just still to this day somehow can't imagine giving themselves permission to allow that to happen. And yet the poetry has all of that juice, all of that potential just sitting there waiting for us to engage it. And I think that's the whole yeah. point of it. In the past, when I you know, would uh, teach performance uh, workshops, I haven't done it for a while, but one of the main instructions I gave to them that I would say every poem is different and when you're doing this if you are thinking I am the poet presenting the poem you're off the track every poem has a soul of its own and you should try to get inside that whatever that soul is it's not always just a character it it's an emotion that becomes uh, personified if you're in your mind you're thinking I am the poet performing on the stage when you wrote that poem, you weren't that. You were the lover or the brother or the hurt person or the ecstasy of seeing something beautiful in the world. And that's what I've always tried to instruct people to do, to bring the poem itself to life. It's just a part of you that's only recognizable through the poem. And people who are listening might be thinking, how could I do this as well? And I think you've demonstrated the way to do it. Show up, be yourself, allow it to have some effect on you and say it over and over again until 
it starts to change you and your change, maybe if you ever do get a chance to perform it, will be a change that might happen to somebody else in the audience. And when I say change, I mean, turn the kaleidoscope a little bit and let the beautiful images that emerge when you stop the kaleidoscope to emerge. And so in a way, performing poetry and doing the kind of work we do is a bit like twirling the kaleidoscope, looking in there and seeing what will happen. And then you stop and then you twirl it again and other things happen and on and on it goes. Yeah, and it's also a craft. I think that's the big thing that we did in the slam world. Like any other performance art, it's a craft that you can learn and pass on. A couple of books I wrote about it, there's all this different technique from learning to use the volume of your thing. You know, when I do the fish choir on stage, man, I fill up the whole auditorium, you know. Well, you can learn to do that. Anybody can learn to do it. It's not just a natural thing. A lot of the great poets of the past who became popular had natural ability. It doesn't have to be natural ability. You know, you can learn this as somebody learns to pick up a baseball bat or shoot a basketball. You might not be able to dunk all the time, but you can still learn a good part of the craft. Uh, It's not just in the moment inspiration. It's definitely a craft. And I think we all have the natural ability to be ourselves. We were born who we are. And if somehow we can find ways to work within our own style, who we are, if you can discover that, then you're fine. That's your natural ability. That's your gift to the world. And it doesn't have to be loud. It can be quiet. If you're shy, be shy. If you're loud, be loud. If you're reserved, uh, hold back. If you feel enthusiastic and curious, go forward and make a big noise. And then once you discover your own style, you can then expand that. And the tone will always stay true to, to who you were when you first appeared in the world. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly, Nave, uh, exactly. And it's with any part of your art, not even with your writing. You need to learn the craft, what divides the okay from the very good artist, or the artist, remember, is that they learn all that craft, and then all of a sudden, they can take from their soul, from the unique person they are, they can bring that out with the craft at the same time, and that's what we revere revere in it. And another point that somebody reading off a page, that can be performance too. And like you say, it doesn't have to be loud. My original style was very aggressive, but you can mesmerize a whole auditorium with the the most quiet, softest poem that that you have. I've seen it done, you know. I've I've been mesmerized by very soft poets. Ocean Bong comes to mind. He's a very soft poet and he mesmerizes people with his his quiet way. And I've seen people who are very soft that do absolutely nothing for me. Ocean Vuong does something remarkable for me. I've seen many loud poets who don't ring true at all. It's like, okay, you're just loud. I could turn on my speaker. So what? Yeah, right. And And I will say, I have been one of the loud poets and was not connected and nobody cared. And when I learned how to at least try to find where that connection is, and it's maybe the quest of trying to find it 
as much as it is finding it that's meaningful for the audience. I, I don't really mind if you miss. I do enjoy watching you try to find it. And somehow, maybe you don't quite get to where you want to go, but who cares? Always we're searching. And this is back to the time in our lives, my friend. You and I are still engaged. We're still exploring, we're still working. We're still trying to find ways to let whatever we do transform us. Even in this interview today, I'm more and more invested in doing these kind of conversations and then airing them because I'm hoping that what we say will somehow have meaning for the people who listen as well as changes me a bit, makes me closer to you. We don't visit much anymore. You're in Chicago area. I'm in Taos. So there's a significance there. I'd rather be in Taos there with you. As I tell you many times, I'd rather come back after I die as Nave. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you've told me that a million times. <laughs> well, we've had some good lives and this has been a really wonderful conversation and I do really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And if people would like to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Google Mark Kelly Smith and see what comes up. And just to be sure, Mark is spelled M-A-R-C, Mark Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, Smith, S-M-I-T-H. And when you Google Mark, the first thing that will come up will be his website, markkellysmith.net. Thank you so much for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Navi. Good to, good to talk with you. And that, my friends, was a conversation with Mark Smith, the founder of the Poetry Slam, coming out of Chicago, Illinois. It's a pleasure to know Mark, and I've always enjoyed listening to him perform. And since we have a little bit of time before the top of the hour, I'd like to play for you one of the poems that Mark performs with his jazz band. The piece is titled, There Again. your mind, search your soul, look behind you, thoughts that follow each place that you run to, in the flame that they draw you right into, still in silence, wraps around us there again. Garden path below, 
lot of work went into making that patch of gravel look so pretty. Huh? Says the carpenter down the block, cutting planks to fill in the porch steps at the corner where two cops parked illegally, balance a box of Dunkin' Donuts on their knees as a bus driver squeals to a stop, letting down the mechanical platform for a tardy grandma burdened by a shopping cart. Thank you, thank you, sir, thank you. Bicycles fly by. Troops of young workers file toward the train station, cell phones in their faces, clutching lattes from the perfect cup where Hugh, the filmmaker, plots his next script. And Janice, the real estate agent, talks too loud. And Barney, the retired accountant, perches on the outside edge of the storefront bench under the scar dangling catalpa tree. Morning in this world. Every day the same, every day different. If you slow down and look, maybe you'll see yourself without a tweet to interrupt the peace. was Mark Smith performing there again with his jazz band. I really do appreciate hearing Mark's work. I've always enjoyed it. And I also appreciate your time tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. This show always airs first on WPVM LP, Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7. Streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and also on other community radio stations throughout the country, like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to hear more of Walter's music. I invite you to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, nave at jamesnave.com. Also, if you'd like to know more about Twice Five Miles, 
You can go to twice5miles.com. There you'll find a lot of wonderful tidbits about writing and other creative things that we do to move our work forward, maybe even get it over the finish line. Twice5miles.com if you're interested in that. And you may recall in the conversation Mark and I just had that the scoring in a poetry slam is 0 to 10 like a diving match. And a 10 is when you hit the ball out of the park. So I would like to thank you for listening and I want to give you a big 10, a perfect score for tuning in. And I do hope you are able to tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you on the turnaround somewhere down the line.